You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 30. Hello again, everyone, and happy holidays. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City and your guide on these voyages of the fantastic. Every week, I bring you fresh new fiction and worlds of wonder. So, let's get right to today's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 3 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. Go back to Episode 24 for the first episode of this story. If you're caught up, follow me ahead to this week's spoilerific story recap. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have just been handed a pair of baffling cases. The first case is a man found dead in Hunter's Hollow, the most dangerous part of the street. Instead of being eaten by monsters, though, this man was burned alive from the inside out, apparently by magic. A subsequent autopsy by Morgan Drowling found that the man had been killed by sudden systemic dehydration. In other words, his bodily fluids had vaporized, which caused his chest to explode outward under the intense pressure. Whatever caused this rapid change also produced an intense heat, which melted and burned the man's body fat like a grease fire. Kate performed an augury on the body at the crime scene, but someone had cast an occultation spell which hid the man's death from view. Morgan is now working to identify the body using DNA and dental records. Interestingly, Morgan also noticed a number of small anomalies in the man's body, which suggested that he might not be completely human. While our detectives were working on this problem, though, they were interrupted by the appearance of Count Xavier Halloway, the Imperial Minister of Intelligence. Count Halloway is looking for his missing daughter, the notorious socialite Mysteria Halloway. Misty Halloway disappeared four weeks ago, leaving a body double to fool both the paparazzi and her father's staff. After being blocked from using the resources of the ministry by his political rivals, Count Halloway was looking for a quieter means of finding his daughter. He deputized Kate and David as adjunct officers in the Ministry of Intelligence, then ordered them to find Misty and ascertain her safety. After reviewing Misty's file, which shows that Count Halloway has been spying on his daughter for years, Kate and David decided to start by visiting Misty's home in Halloway Tower. Perhaps an augury will give them some clues about where Misty has gone, and where they should start looking for her. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 3 continued. After reading through the autopsy report over dinner, an experience that was every bit as unappealing as it sounded, but one which Kate was used to by now, she and David went to investigate Misty's home. Most of the noble houses owned at least one of the major towers in Metamore City, and House Halloway was no exception. Halloway Tower was one of the newer megastructures in the city, 
a glistening octagonal spire of glass and steel that made use of the latest theories in urban design. The building's upper levels were divided into bowl-shaped tiers of ten stories each, separated by vast gaps in which only massive support columns stood between the building's interior and the open sky. At the top of each tier was a broad green space, with manicured gardens and orchards of fruit trees interspersed between winding paths and small plazas. The building stretched to a height of 600 meters, high above the highest skyways, where it stood as a testimony to the power and vision of House Halloway. It was an extraordinary piece of work, and Kate had to admire the attempt to turn Metamore's endless concrete jungle into something that felt a little more natural. The motto used in the advertisements for the Halloway Tower apartments, Feel Human Again, seemed to reflect that desire to reconnect with something that the city had lost. Unfortunately, it also hinted at Halloway's noxious racial views. None of the House's members had ever taken the curse or married a non-human, and they were almost unbearably smug about their pure human pedigree. For that alone, Kate could almost admire Misty Halloway for setting out to look as inhuman as possible. Almost. David parked the skimmer in the guest parking garage on one of the lower tiers. There they boarded a monorail that carried them up and around the tower in a spiral path to the top story of the uppermost tier. After a security screening, which was only peremptory once the guards saw their special clearance badges, Kate and David were admitted to Misty's suite. The apartment took up one quarter of the tower's penthouse floor, which made it larger than some houses Kate had seen growing up in suburban Allentown. The front rooms met most of Kate's expectations about Misty. Decorated in rich, dark reds with soft carpets, crushed velvet upholstery, silk curtains, and lots of throw pillows, it looked like a sensualist's boudoir though the sensualists were probably more economical about it. Glamour shots of Misty and posters from the terrible movies she had starred in decorated the walls, along with more abstract art pieces that were all at least vaguely erotic in their imagery. What appeared to be small sculptures stood on end tables around the room, but on further examination, Kate suspected that they were actually sex toys— A candy dish above the fireplace was stuffed full of condoms in little foil packets. As they passed into the private areas at the back of the apartment, however, a different picture of Misty emerged. The sexual imagery and self-congratulation were replaced by amateur photographs in small frames, a view from a mountaintop, a close-up of an insect on a flower, a lanky woman with white blonde hair standing on the beach with a surfboard, Little plush animals sat in places of honor on shelves between travel guides and handwritten journals. The woman's bedroom, the real one, not the one where she took her many lovers, looked like something out of a country cottage, with hand-knitted blankets, porcelain dolls, and a calendar with cute pictures of kittens. An old stuffed bear sat on the large feather bed. It had white fur and bore the name Seffy on its belly in sparkling red thread. At least now we know the terrible secret of Mysteria Halloway, David said dryly. That decadent and seductive exterior hides an inner life that is... actually kind of wholesome. Our Misty is a girly girl, Kate agreed, looking at the stuffed bear. I wonder who Seffy is. I wonder what this flower is, 
David said, peering at a potted plant on the nearby desk. It had striking blue and white flowers above long, sword-shaped leaves. It looks vaguely familiar. That's a nocturnus lily, Kate said. They grow near the Telvari Rift. Artax told me they have some useful alchemical properties, but I've never looked into the details. Too expensive to be worth it for what I do. David nodded thoughtfully. I wonder why Mysteria had one. She's no alchemist. Kate shrugged. Probably just like the look of it. It's not like she can't afford them. They checked Misty's computer, but it was password protected. And that, apparently, was one area of her life that Count Halloway had not successfully invaded. The latest journal contained a few hints about her activities, but the details had all been omitted. Talk to S about helping Z with RZ project. Says she's totally in. Looks like she figured out Daddy was spying on her, Kate said. David shook his head. I don't understand the human obsession with controlling the lives of their children. Among my people, we expect each child to assert his individuality in his own way. Parents advise and counsel, but they don't do this sort of micromanaging. Yeah, well, human parents are usually trying to give their kids the life they wanted, Kate said. Probably has something to do with our shorter lifespans, I guess. We know we're going to die before we become everything we want to be, so we try to get our kids to pick up where we left off. Passing on genes isn't enough, then, David mused. They have to pass on their learned behaviors and ideas as well, because they don't live long enough to make sure they're preserved for later generations. Interesting. Kate smiled privately to herself. Her partner's ongoing pastime was a sort of extended research project into human culture, thinking, and behavior. He hoped the insights he gained by studying humanity would help him to understand the god he worshipped, eventually leading to an epiphany that would unite his soul with its creator. Kate suspected that humans weren't the most likely candidates for reflecting the Almighty, but she was certainly glad he chose to stick around. Come on, she said. Let's get this place set up for the augury. The floor of the bedroom was covered in carpet, so Kate had to forego chalk and draw her circles in colored sand, which she kept in the trunk of David's skimmer for such contingencies. It was going to leave a bit of a mess, but Kate suspected that Misty had a cleaning service, and she was fairly sure that a bit of sand was far from the nastiest thing they'd had to clean up. When all was in readiness, she drew out her Arthana, summoned up her power, and cast the spell. The timeline for the apartment was far shorter than that of the alley, since the building had only been finished about ten years ago. Most of the strongest emotional resonance in the room came from times that Misty had spent with the lanky blonde girl from the photographs. Kate sped forward to the most recent of these. She couldn't be sure of the exact time, but in the vision, the calendar was turned to February of this year. All I'm saying is that I'm worried about them, the blonde girl said. She sat on the floor next to the bed while Misty painted her toenails. Zeke is so fixated on this thing. Like, all he has to do is go through with it, and it's going to solve all his problems. And Julia, that poor girl is so screwed up. Hey, Misty said. As far as I'm concerned, Julie's the least screwed up person in that whole house. I mean, an entire clan made up of rats? Really? That's the best they could come up with? It's hero worship, Misty, the blonde said. Charles I, the Rat of Might, remember? Saved the whole world at one point? Misty snorted. 
Whatever. It's a rat, Seffy. Ugly thing. Icky brown fur. Buggy eyes. Scaly tail. The most powerful noble house in the empire, and they go around looking like that, and being proud of it. Then Julie gets the good luck to be born human, and they treat her like she was born with no legs or something. That's kind of my point, sweetie, Seffy said. You grow up in an environment like that, being pitied your whole life because you're a normal, average human. It's going to give you a complex. And Zeke's got his own issues. I just hope they aren't going to end up doing something they'll regret. Well, we'll see, Misty said, shrugging. I'm not going to get stupid about it, but it's the sort of opportunity you just can't turn down. I know what you mean, Seffy said. She sighed. All right. Tell Zeke I'm in. Maybe between us we can keep them out of trouble. Misty laughed once. That'd be a switch, wouldn't it? Me keeping someone else out of trouble. The women laughed together, and then the vision faded. Kate broke the circle, letting the mana drain out of the spell. She sat back on her haunches, thinking. David leaned into her field of vision, catching her eye. Well? Kate related the events she had seen. It definitely sounds like they were planning something risky, she said. Do you know who any of these people are? Obviously this Julia must be from Clan Matthias, and a human throwback from the sound of it. That's a hard life, David said, nodding. I don't know the others, but I know I've seen the blonde girl in photos with Misty. I suspect Morgan would be the better one to ask. Probably, yeah. Morgan's parents had cut her off from the family fortune years ago, in retaliation for her choice of boyfriends, but she still stood to inherit everything when they died. For that reason alone, she continued to keep tabs on her old social circle. Eventually, she'd need to use those connections to secure a future for her house. Kate stood and started gathering up her spellcasting equipment. Let's pack up and get out, then. I don't think we're going to find anything else of value here. The police detectives gathered their tools and left the way they had come. A quiet presence watched from atop the desk, anchored to the magic that flowed through the blue and white flowers of the potted plant. The entity was disturbed by what it had seen. The detectives were getting too close, too fast, and it was not at all sure they could be trusted. If the truth were exposed to the wrong people, it could be disastrous. They would need to be watched. That much was certain. The others would need to be informed as well. They were running out of time. The entity could feel that, feel the sickening dread as the seconds and hours slipped away. There would be another death, and soon, unless they could do something drastic to prevent it. Perhaps the old man could help. With an effort of will, the entity drew its awareness away from the girl's bedroom and projected itself out across the city, to where another cluster of plants waited to receive it. There was much to do. The entity only hoped it was not already too late. And that's the end of Chapter 3, folks. What is the entity watching Kate and David? What will it do now that it knows they are looking for Misty? And what does all this have to do with the dead man in the alley? 
The mystery continues next week. Carlos Fuentes said, Writing is a struggle against silence. I guess that means I was always destined to be a writer, because my family never could get me to shut up. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 7,686 words this week, over the course of 9.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 788 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 200 days without breaking my chain. This week I wrote my first story for that anthology workshop I'm hoping to take part in. The story is called Missing Pieces, and it takes place in Metamore City. The finished story came out to 5,983 words, just shy of the 6,000-word limit. I've sent the story to some beta readers I trust, and if it all goes well, I'll submit it on Sunday. By the way, if you're a subscriber to my Patreon feed, you should go check it out, because this week I released my second bonus story. It's called Last Sunset at the Golden Gate, and you may remember me talking about it during my writing reports back during the summer. I'd love to hear what you guys think of this one, so give it a listen and let me know. And now, the feedback. Data Pulverizer wrote in to say this. Hi, Chris. I'm a huge fan of your writing podcast and have bought your Things Unseen book. For more than a decade, I have used Podio Books, also donating, and bought many books on Audible. My main observation is that the quality of writing and audio production in Audible in the sci-fi fantasy genre is not as good as in Podio Books. I have been more entertained by Podio Books than Audible. This frustrates me, because I would like to see authors that I like be better rewarded for their efforts. They do it for the love of it, but that doesn't mean they should not get paid well for it. For some reason, these authors are not coming through in Audible, and I don't know why. Could you please shed some light on this? For instance, why has Things Unseen not been published on Audible? I'd buy it in a second. Should there be a competitor to Audible in the sci-fi fantasy genre? Are there authors or publishers currently doing this? I feel conflicted about you recording Things Unseen and releasing it openly. I haven't had the time to read the book, and would like to listen to the audio version. However, my personal belief is that your podcast should be small stories to sell your main work. In fact, I think you've probably given more than enough stuff for free. Things Unseen is a main work and too valuable to be given away, which is essentially what podcasting it would be doing. I think your skills are not just great writing, but also great reading and audio production. I know about Liminal Corvid Press, but is there a plan for an audiobook publishing aspect to this? Unquote. Hi, DP. First of all, thank you very much for the compliments on my audio performance and production. I'm glad to know people are pleased with the product that I'm putting out there for them. Second, as to the audio quality on Audible, I will agree that it used to be pretty low. I think it was mostly a result of bandwidth limitations in the early years. When I listen to books on Audible now, though, I find that most of them are of quite good audio quality. There are still exceptions, but on the whole, I'm happy with the direction the industry has been going. As for the quality of the stories themselves... That's a matter of personal taste, and not one that I'm going to comment on here. Third, there are a number of podcast authors who are putting their books on Audible. 
Right now, you can go to Audible and buy books by Scott Sigler, Paul Cooley, Matthew Wayne Selznick, Mark Jeffrey, T. Morrison Pitt Ballantyne, J. Daniel Sawyer, Justin McCumber, Lauren Harris, Abigail Hilton, and the cast of The Secret World Chronicle. And that's just the ones I've thought of. At this point, I'm sort of the exception in that I don't have a book up for sale there yet. And that leads to the question of why Things Unseen isn't up there. There's a very long list of reasons for the delays in production, partly because my vision of what I wanted for the audiobook kept changing, but mostly because of the usual problems of not enough time and or money to pull off the production. I resisted podcasting the novel for a long time for exactly the reasons you describe, but one of the things I've learned about myself is that I need the kind of ongoing feedback that podcasting provides in order to motivate me to keep writing. That's the whole reason I started The Raven in the Writing Desk. And I'd rather be podcasting things unseen and have time to write The Lost in the Least than to be working to produce a whole bunch of short stories for this podcast and then not have time to work on the next big novel. And if you feel guilty about getting something for free that you'd have been willing to pay for, first off, don't, because you bought the book, and that's more than a lot of people have done. And second, if you do feel like you need to be chipping in for the audiobook version that you're getting here on the podcast, there's a way to do that. Support the show on Patreon. If you pledge at $3 a month and support the show for a year, the amount of revenue that will bring me is at least comparable to what I'd get if you bought the audiobook and paid full price for it. And it's easy. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash author Chris Luster. And as an extra thank you, you'll get cool bonus content every month. Hi Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. Chapter 3, Part 1 of Things Unseen was really interesting. I feel like we got a whole lot of information in this half a chapter, and yet it didn't feel like an info dump or some sort of exposition hell, so I say well done on your part. (laughs) I thought it was cool to see the discussion with Holloway because it kind of showed me a little bit more about Kate and David's relationship. Also, I'm not sure if this was intentional, and maybe I missed something here, just because I did listen to this a few days ago, but uh, Montgomery just kind of sitting there during that whole discussion, and I don't think he even talked at all during it, but he's sitting there. Really, just the idea amuses me now that I think about it because of the type of theriomorph he is. I'm just visualizing that in my head and just kind of laughing at it. And I don't know if you meant it to be that way, but whatever the case, it was just kind of a little extra something. Hi, Sarah. Yes, Captain Montgomery keeping out of that conversation was very much intentional. He agrees with Kate that the whole situation is an outrage, so he's not going to say anything to help Halloway or show support for him co-opting the captain's detectives. On the other hand, Halloway can make life a living hell for Montgomery if he feels that the captain is a troublemaker. So Montgomery isn't going to say anything to defend Kate and David either. So that leaves him sitting there, surrounded by armed guards, stewing in his own carefully hidden rage. It's a good thing that Halloway and his men aren't telepaths. Anyway... Seeing David and Kate talking about the Church of Hedonism and Misty's involvement was really interesting. I feel like it was helpful having already 
listened to To Walk in Shadow because we know more about the Church of Hedonism from that story. Actually, To Walk in Shadow featured the cult of Baal, which does have some hedonistic elements in its worship, but it has a different master and different goals. The actual Church of Hedonism belongs to Suspira, a sex and fertility goddess on the Daedra side of the Pantheon. We saw her followers in the Cuckoo, including John, who turns out to be important in Things Unseen. And, of course, we are in that place where we know more than the characters at this point. So I'm just kind of wondering where their investigation is going to take them. And, well, we'll see that this week, (laughs) at least the beginnings. But what I really, really liked in this part was the interaction with Morgan. Because Morgan's great. I love Morgan. I really like Kate a lot, too. But Morgan's just, I don't know. She's just special. <laughs> I, I I don't really know how to explain it more than that right this second. But I like how the sciency bits played out here. I do not claim to be an expert, but I do know, you know, enough science to sometimes read something and be like, wait, that does not seem like sound science. So it's nice to see things that at least seem reasonably accurate. And on just the way that the guy died... That's just freaking fascinating and very creative. Thank you. In the course of writing this book, there were a few references that I found very helpful on the forensic side of things. Dr. D.P. Lyle has written several books on forensics for writers, including the How Done It volume, simply titled Forensics, and two Q&A books called Murder and Mayhem and Forensics and Fiction. I found all three to be very useful. So if you're looking to get the science right in your detective stories, you should definitely check them out. One thing is, though, that I feel like Morgan's conclusion that the guy wasn't entirely human, I feel like it's like she didn't have to conclude that. I mean, I understand why she did, just because the probability of that many anomalies is really low, because it would be like 2% times 2% times 2% for every anomaly to get the like probability, and that's a really small number. However, that doesn't mean it's completely impossible, but well, I'm guessing that she's not wrong for the sake of the story, but I don't know. Maybe that's me just being nitpicky. I'm not saying this was a bad thing. I'm just saying, like, I feel like making that conclusion might not have been necessary, but at least making that prediction, I don't know, difference between prediction and conclusion. It's true that Morgan's conclusion wouldn't stand up beyond all doubt. Sure, it's possible that a person could be outside the human norm in that many different aspects and still be human. And if this were a story taking place in our world, where non-human humanoids no longer exist, then concluding that the person was still human would be the only rational decision. However, since our heroes live in a world where non-human humanoids are a known thing, and not terribly rare, it actually makes more sense to conclude that the subject was a non-human, because it's the least unlikely explanation for the facts. And yes, there's still room for doubt— But at this point, Morgan's not trying to prove something in a court of law. She's trying to interpret the clues in front of her, and give Kate and David the best possible leads to pursue their investigation. Given what Morgan found, Kate and David should assume the victim was non-human until they see strong evidence to the contrary. And since the Lightbringers have jurisdiction over cases involving outsiders, that means that they can expect more Lightbringer involvement in the case. Hence Morgan's warning. 
Anyway, I did find it interesting, though, and the idea of something pretending to be human but not being very good at it. I think that if there are minute differences, that actually is being pretty good at it. And I feel like not everyone would have picked up what Morgan did. So definitely looking forward to the next part. And I will look forward to hearing more and leaving more feedback. Take care. That's a good point. And you're right. Morgan's minute attention to detail is the reason that the victim's inhuman nature was uncovered. There's a reason why Kate says that Morgan is the best ME she's ever worked with. And this is one example of that. Thanks for calling in. If you'd like to leave feedback about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To discuss the stories with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week, folks. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>